1: This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Ooh, here it comes, the big P-L-O-T, the sea of story that so many seem to get lost within while watching Inherent Vice, the rush of strange names, Adrian, Puck, Vincent, and of course, our old pal Bigfoot. Like one of Adrian's baseball bats to the head, it's a scene that fires one massive chunk of exposition right at our brains. The only question, then, is the same that afflicts Doc, can we catch it?
2: The director of inherent vice this guy maybe you've heard of him Paul Thomas Anderson he once said during an interview with Rolling Stone during the press cycle for the film that being too precious about anything is bad for your health you know so being too precious about adapting Thomas Pynchon's words or being too precious about making the film my own either one of those things sounds horrible and kind of a mistake There were definitely times during the process of making the movie when I thought I was being overly protective about what he wrote, and that was not a good place to be. The film actually became more fun to make when we weren't doing that. And that's as good a place as any to start today's episode, since we're talking today about a scene that melds together so much of the labyrinthine and arcane plotting of Pinchon's novel, with the more gut-based, emotional, and intuitive storytelling of Anderson's later works. And it's a great place to start today's conversation, since it is with the man who held that interview with PTA five years ago, a senior editor and film and TV critic at Rolling Stone magazine. And buckle up, everybody, because you're you, any, any writers out there are just going to get sick with jealousy hearing this and the former film editor of Time Out New York. Today's guest has been published in the New York Times Magazine, The Village Voice, Esquire, Spin, The New York Daily News, the San Francisco Bay Guardian, and many, many, many others. And is the host of an upcoming Coolidge Corner Theater virtual seminar on PTA's There Will Be Blood at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Thursday, August 27th, you can register to see that at Coolidge.org backslash events. He didn't pay me to say that. I just want everyone to watch it. Mr. David Fear. Thank you for joining me today. From from Stone Turntable Magazine. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, see, you you beat me at my own intro. That's that's perfect. I should have just said that.
1: First,
3: I, we before let's get a couple of things out of the way before we before we dive into this. Scene. Sure.
2: let's do some house cleaning.
3: First off, I want it on the record that I'm not a pot smoker, but I've concocted a very Bigfoot-friendly drink here <laughs> that was not made for me by a uh, by a seven-year-old child. Go to bed. Yeah, go to bed. <laughs> it's so great. Uh, second, I have a I have a question for you since you brought up there will be blood, which I have to admit is my uh it's my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film. Now. I know you and Jason Bailey got into a bit of a debate uh, or rather a categorization discussion on his episode. Is there will be blood uh, a Coke kid movie or a weed dad movie?
2: (laughs) That's a good question. And I got to say, once again, I, 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 I probably owe Bailey some cash or something for that delineation because that has come up on nearly every goddamn episode since Coke Kid versus Weed Dad. That is such a perfect encapsulation, I think, of PTA's uh, uh, body of work so far. I think, you know what I think? Uh, There Will Be Blood is definitely Weed Dad, but it's Weed Dad as he's, it's like his first year as Weed Dad, where he's still kind of longing for Coke Kid, I think, a little bit. Mm. A little bit. Mm. You know what it is? He's Jason Bateman in Juno, Weed Dad. (laughs) Wow.
3: Okay. Well, listen. It was still great in this podcast to with
2: you, Travis. And I'm going
3: to go ahead and <laughs> shut my computer off. You just compared him to Jason Bateman and Juno,
2: and now just uh, just t- in, terms of, in terms of in terms of Weed Dad. Well, we're, look at this. We're already having our first fight. Oh gosh. <laughs> but no, no. He's. It's. I think it's very much. I, I. I. And I think that in a weird way, I also think that Punch Drunk Love is is Coke Kid, but becoming Weed Dad. I think that those are actually two very transitional films. I don't think that "There Will Be Blood" gets thought of as a more of a transitional film, just because the aesthetic is so stone hard and set and thought through. It just feels like it feels so fully formed. It feels like it always existed, and we just unearthed this film from the dirt.
3: That's actually really interesting because I have actually I've gotten into an argument with uh, numerous people that uh, "There Will Be Blood" is sort of like the transitional film for him. In so many ways it feels like you can you can split his work into sort of bef- like pre-blood and post-blood if you will mm. uh, because the style feels so different from everything that's come before it it feels like he's kind of come into his own sensibility wise even though he's adapting loosely adapting but still adapting yeah. a, a work that you know it doesn't originally come from him and it it feels like he's starting to enter this very kind of almost abstract period yeah. where he's not necessarily sort of i mean it's just there's so many ellipses in that movie and that strikes me as something new not just the fo- i mean there's an incredible amount of focus on it but it's this weird focus without a kind of show off equality that are in his first three movies all, all three of which i you know love and appreciate for their for their various virtues but that was the movie i saw where i just remember being like okay he's a major filmmaker He's not just like a wonderful filmmaker. He's a major filmmaker. And I felt like that was kind of like where the line in the sand got drawn.
2: Sure. And, 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 we're, and I'm probably splitting hairs when I, de, when I define the, the transition from coke kittery to weed to dattery. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think for me, it's almost like the where, we're, we're, going, we're going to go to another weird place. Uh, I already did uh, Jason Bateman and Juno. So uh, buckle up. You know those cheap werewolf movies, uh, you know, like in the '40s or '50s. Not even the really top tier ones, where there would be a transition effect, yeah. uh, where they from from man to werewolf. But and they would, it would be going so great, there would be a dissolve, and but then there would always be a hard cut, really quick, to some to someone's reaction, and then you'd cut back, and instead of still transitioning, it would just be full wolf man, and. I feel like that's what happened with his career, and that I feel like Punch Drunk feels very different from Sydney and Boogie Nights and Magnolia. Punch Drunk feels like he's he's letting off the clutch. He's he's only holding the wheel with one hand. And we're gonna just if the car hits a couple of bumps, if it gets off the road, it's fine because he's he's not trying as hard to control everything. And things start to get a little loosey-goosey. And then I feel like there's the hard cut to the to the screaming maiden looking at the werewolf and then when we cut back there's there will be blood which feels so fully formed and thought through it, it feels less a transition to me and more just this is it this is the final result this is who i am but that's probably part and parcel because of how confident that film is it's not that punch drunk isn't confident but it's there's a there's a shyness about that film there's there's a that just feels like a, it's a state of transition that film whereas Nothing about there will be blood feels second-guessed, or confused, yeah. or unsure of itself. It is so sure-footed as to what it is doing and where it is going. It just never felt like a transition to me. It just felt like this is something that always was, and we're discovering it. But again, probably splitting. It is the beginning. Certainly, I would definitely call it the the very first film in what is the the weed dad era. That that very ellipsis based yeah more mysterious more intuitive filmmaker than than the the four films that came before
3: yeah I'd actually i mean thank you i'd forgotten that punch drunk love came right before there will be blood um and i should know that because i remember seeing i remember seeing it in san francisco right before i left to come here to live in new york and then seeing there was this <laughs> one of my fondest memories of working at timeout was uh, I was lucky enough to work with the uh, estimable Josh Rothkoff. He was my co-critic. And uh, I remember him going, okay, so uh, can you man the, man the fort for a bit? I have to go off and go see uh, a screening. And it was uh, an early screening of Zodiac. And he oh came back with this look on his, I mean, like, it's just that kind of look on your face you get when you see a movie that has like changed your genetic structure. And he came back, and he goes, you know that look? I, I think I think I've seen a masterpiece. I can't like this. This movie's amazing. It's so wonderful." And I was so envious because you know those you feel like those feelings are so uh, they're so rare. Even when you see, I mean, a ridiculous amount of movies, you know, every year for years on end, professionally, personally, or otherwise, it you you chase that high. You chase that high the way junkies chase highs. Yeah. And um, and then two days later. I got a last-minute invite to see the very first preview screening in New York of There Will Be Blood. It was the very first press screening they had, and I and he and he talks. He's like, I came back into the office after that, and he looked at me and he goes, "Okay, now I get it." Like that, was <laughs> was, was that the look I had on my face when I came back like, two days earlier and I said, "Yeah, I I I think I've seen a masterpiece." Like, holy shit, I can't believe this. And then you know went back and saw the next screening of it, which I think was a week later, and then just kept going back to it. It's that, it's that one thing where um, something just grab. I mean, the way you've talked about vice on the show, like something just kind of grabs you. And even if you can't, you're still kind of holding it in your hand, trying to like figure out what it is. It's this kind of thing where you can't, you just can't let go of it.
2: Exactly. And, and that's, I feel like is as, as fun and as amazing and as wonderful and as entertaining as his first four films are, I'll always enjoy *Boogie Nights*. I'm always going to have a good time with. Well, I don't know if I would say I'll always have a good time with *Magnolia*, but I will always appreciate *Magnolia* as emotionally brutal as it is. I love *Punch Drunk*. I really enjoy *Sydney*. But I, I think that there is something to this back half of his of his filmography that just invites you to keep coming back and keep discovering and keep uh, peeling back those layers. And it's not that the the early films aren't layered, there's just a different form of construction beginning with There Will Be Blood that the rewards are so much larger with returning to these films because the, the rewards aren't as evident when the, the first time through it. The rewards, I think, are so much more evident when you're watching Boogie Nights. Yes, you're going to come back and you're going to discover smaller things, more nuanced things, but those payoffs are not going to be anywhere near as large as going back and re-watching The Master and watching the slow boat to China sequence for the fourth time and just finally so getting what is going on in this movie and having your heart explode because of that and, and, and just in cinematic ecstasy, but also heartbreak. And there's something about the, these last few films, these last four films, that just pay off in a different way, and I think a better way, a more fulfilling way. And Inherent Vice is one of those, but yes, obviously, there will be blood. It's it's the beginning of that streak.
3: Yeah, and you know, if you'd asked me, if you'd, if you'd said that uh, after the very first time I'd seen Inherent Vice, I probably would have strenuously disagreed with you only because I really didn't like the film after I saw it, I, I read Pynchon's book. I was a huge fan of Anderson's work. I, You know, he, I was sort of like, okay, pound for pound, this is the guy, this is the guy of that generation of filmmakers that I feel like is really going to be, be canon worthy. Um, and then I saw this and was sort of like, I just, it wasn't, it wasn't doing it for me. And part of me was like, well, I don't smoke pot. So maybe, it, <laughs> it, maybe it's not doing that for me. But then, you know, I watch enough Altman movies that I kind of understand that sort of, <laughs> Lucy goosey pot feeling, so I you know I should get this and it it really wasn't doing it for me, and it it kind of broke my heart and then uh the the editor in chief of the magazine at the time because he'd i'd come back and he uh he had been like uh fear fear how was it how was it? how was the movie and I was like D- dude, i'm sorry it's not it's not good like i just it, it, i don't think it's very good and uh and he was sort of like, oh okay oh, fine fine, fine and then in the middle, like out of the blue, two three weeks later, I get this email at like 11:30 at night, and it's from him, emailing from a cabin. Apparently, he was in some cabin upstate, and was like, "I just watched. A, I borrowed a screener of it because it was right when the all the for your consideration screeners came yeah. out." He's like, "I just I just watched the screener of it. I think you're wrong. I think you got to watch it again. You got to check it out. And then uh, you're gonna go, you're gonna go talk to Anderson. Where you, that's what you're gonna do a piece for the magazine when the film comes out. You're gonna go talk to him." And I was like okay all right fine let me go back to it and uh and watch it again and it was like this kind of it was like a glacier melting the longer i watched it hmm. i could, i was suddenly sort of like oh, okay yeah like i'm i see it now and at first it was the grace notes because and this is a yeah. film that like if you can say nothing else about it
2: it's nothing but, it's, it's overloaded with those
3: oh my god chock full of grace notes uh and I suddenly started to warm to it. And then a couple days later, went back and saw it again in a theater. Um, I want to say it was the New York Film Festival screening of it, but I, that might not be right. Um, and then uh, it just, I don't know, it was one of those things where I was suddenly like, okay, I'm, I'm really starting to get to it. And as I've watched it again and again over uh, the last few years, uh, I've really kind of warmed to it. I've really kind of loved it. I, or I love it, rather. Like it's, I grew to love it. Um, but it was a slow process. It was not an immediate process, uh, as with a lot of his other movies. But in a, in a way, it makes me appreciate it more.
2: That that right there, that feeling. I I think that so many of the people who, whose experience with the film is like yours, um, you know, because there's a couple people. There's the people that have hated the movie and never returned to it. There's the people like myself who just became obsessed. Very for the first time, those credits rolled, like we're just hooked. And then there's that. That more, I think, uh, that n- more nuanced middle ground where it first time it was like eh, I don't know, man, the heat's off. Like he, I don't know what he was doing, but he blew it. It's too much fun on that set. And then you come back and you go, oh no, there's something here. And and in that returning and in getting that reward, it feels so much sweeter because you didn't like it the first time, and because yeah. you're traversing such a larger gulf from oh man, he blew it to holy shit, did he? make another masterpiece is he like is he eight for eight or at that time I guess it would have been uh seven for seven like, is he seven for seven No, he is one after another my god which brings up I think a pretty valid question and kind of kind of swings us back to the beginning which is cool because he's a circular filmmaker so hey that works we'll go with it <laughs> so swinging back to what you said about PTA's later films uh there's uh, there was a I remember you you tweeted once uh, about this you said so many movies deserve slash open up on second viewings but later pta really just blossoms when you go back and and and, you, and as you said today you said it on that tweet it took me three times with inherent vice before i could appreciate how beautifully fuzzy brained it really is and going to that to that idea look almost every film can really really open up on a second viewing or third or fourth or fifth but there really is something unique about anderson's later films that even his as i said his own earlier stuff doesn't seem to possess it's as if whole worlds are buried in his post punch drunk work worlds that own entire worlds that only become clear with re- repeated viewings yeah. no matter how much you loved or hated that first time what the hell is that how does he why is that how is that how does that work when i have no better way of uh, or more uh, cogent way of asking that question how does he do that
3: how does he do that? Is a it's it's really the ten thousand dollar question, um, and I almost feel like you can do, you can give different answers for each of those films you're talking about. Each of what we'll call the the back half, um, even though initially uh, Inherent Vice feels like such an outlier from the back half. In a lot of ways, it feels like a movie he would have made before um, before There Will Be Blood. In fact, I remember when I, when I sat down and talked to him for that interview that you brought up. Um, I remember asking him being like, So you got to you got to be on Altman's set, like you actually got to work with Altman before you know he died. And he was like, Yeah, oh my god, it was like, you know, can you imagine blah, blah blah blah? And I was like, Do you think you could have made inherent vice if you hadn't have done that? Like in a lot of ways I almost feel like like apprenticing at the master's feet, even though he had clearly been an Altman fan before that and clearly could yeah. make Altman esque movies, I mean Boogie Nights, you know, Boogie Nights in so many ways is Nashville with Cox like it's uh (laughs) like thinking like oh was it was this the kind of thing and he just looked at me and went no no i could have made that (laughs) like as if i'd asked him the dumbest fucking question that i (laughs) could possibly like i think he would he was ready more ready to answer whether he'd actually met thomas Pynchon than answer that question at that moment (laughs) and i was sort of like oh okay right well um i mean i can tell you though like from the repeated viewings I've had of this particular movie, um, and really, really kind of coming home to me when I rewatch, I hadn't seen it in a couple of years and I rewatched it last night. So I, that I'd be ready to like talk about it today. Um, I want to say that like the first viewing kind of invites you through the door and then the second viewing opens that door sort of shows you through and then slams <laughs> the door behind you and locks it. And, and then, and then gives you a foot rub.
2: Every a really good there.
3: acrobiotic tofu, and uh, um...
2: <laughs> and a little bit of PCP. A
3: little bit of PCP,
2: That's that is the thing that I always I won't say I wrestle with it because it's not like a grand dilemma for me, but it is something kind of ineffable and hard to get my arms around, even for this film, which I have spoken about at so much goddamn length. I'm not entirely sure what it is, I'm not entirely sure why. I mean i i can i can point at superficial elements of all of his last four films oh this is yeah great. this is why punch drunk is such a or excuse me this is why phantom Thread is such a beauty this is why the master breaks my heart this is why uh blood is so funny and terrifying simultaneously and this is why vice just captures my imagination and my heart but i can't at the same time though you can say that about like you can say that about any film there there just is something at play beneath the surface that is hard to quantify and I don't even think that he could, if you asked him, he would probably just, you know, smack his gun. With, I don't know, man, just trying to make a good movie. Just trying to do what I do. I don't know. You, you know, you never think about it too hard on the day. You're just trying to get the shots. I, I don't know. It just works out. Like, that's exactly what he would do. He'd just shrug it off. But there's something at work there that's grander than just the Valley Boy thing that I think yeah. he presents uh, when you talk to him
3: it's funny I've interviewed him twice now and I remember sitting sitting in that hotel in Tribeca talking to him like in that little Tribeca cafe at the bottom of De Niro's hotel where the interviews were placed I remember sitting there with him and him kind of doing that very sort of modest overly modest kind of shrug off thing which I think is partially because you know he doesn't want to answer or he doesn't want to give a pretentious answer and so much of what I think he does is I mean I think he's a, a a cinematic genius but i also think he works so much by instinct yeah um that uh that a lot of it's kind of trying to like push you off and delay giving an answer and ob- ob- obfuscate and do all that kind of stuff and another part of him is really just sort of like yeah i mean i just you know i i'm just doing what i'm doing like i got to get, <laughs> get from point a to point b and you have, the, you have these great actors and you just don't get in their way and that's what you do But I really do feel, and you see this when you watch the, um, if you watch the Magnolia, that great supplementary documentary. That moment. Yeah. Yeah, that moment. Um, Where you actually see him on set directing actors, and you realize that there is, it's almost like a fugue state. He's so keyed in to what they're doing, and he's so keyed in to the humanity of it all. He's so keyed in to the actual emotional content of it that you never get the sense... And the, the funny thing is, the scene where you see him doing that is, it's the, the quiz kid scene on the game show set, Yeah. when you watch the movie, is a very elaborate tracking shot, and very kind of show-offy in its way, and you can tell that, I think it's mostly one take, and uh, you can tell that the people have to hit their marks, hit their lights, say the lines at the exact right moment as the camera's coming by them, so it's really that kind of like, okay, well, this is the Rube Goldberg mousetrap and everything's got <laughs> the right place. And then when you see him, all he's doing is he's just watching those actors.
2: He's just he's focusing so, on the people.
3: So focusing on the people. And I think, I think that's a huge difference between him and a lot of other filmmakers of his generation who have, who have gained um, fame, infamy, and notoriety. And I think that uh, it's really what makes him the, 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 the heir to like Jonathan Demi you know, who in a lot of ways was the heir exactly. to Robert and who was a lot of the ways the heir to Jean Renoir. Like, these are guys who like, you know, they're humanistic filmmakers, but working on a big canvas. And yeah. to be able to kind of balance those two things, even in a film as cold and cryptic and chilly as There Will Be Blood, um, it just boggles my mind. It boggles my mind that, that somebody like that is doing that, much less an American filmmaker in the 21st century.
2: I mean, I've I, absolutely, and I've and I've said before what what I call PTA's type of filmmaking, or the the kind of portraiture that he presents, it's almost cosmic humanism. That's that's uh, thing it's it's almost cosmic in its in its grandiosity and its scale, and even in something like as you said, you know, you can look at something as kind of chilly and uh, overused term, but uh, Kubrickian as there will be blood even that a film like that i think that there is kind of a warm gooey pta center in there i mean yeah. you know i you hear him talk about the movie it's funny you know i saw him once with an interview and someone was like oh so this is this really is your kind of your fuck you to capitalism and to america and to the black the black blood that runs through our veins of oil like the, the, the tainting us and the toxicity of that and in that great inimitable pta way he's like I don't know. I, I think about the movie. I just think about Daniel and his son. It's kind of, it's it's another one of my father's son movies, I guess. I mean, that's how I viewed it. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. The whole America thing, that's a pretty big one to bite off. I wouldn't say that. You know, to him, he's like, it's just a father-son movie about a cranky dude and his kid. <laughs> and that's that's so, that that's so him to me, that cosmic humanism, and that, that these are all people movies, which brings me to something I wanted to ask you, and you're going to have to Here's here's where you you lean back and you enjoy your very bigfoot beverage while I go go on a spiel here, but uh, as someone who has spoken directly to PTA about this film, and I do love how your interview, which has a great line, uh, you can see why a great line of yours uh, where you write you can see why Pinchon's wacky roundabout mystery was a good fit for Anderson and how it eventually reveals what it's really about, just like the filmmaker himself, in that interview. You framed him as a man who's both at times extraordinarily inarticulate if you approach him dead on, if you approach him directly. At one point, you ask him how he came to discover Pinchon's work, and he just kind of shrugged and goes, uh, points to his head and goes, I don't know, it's messy up here, man. (laughs) And then uh, a little later, you asked him what the 70s meant to him, and he gives you an anecdote about getting his, quote, wiener caught in a jumpsuit zipper. And eating (laughs) breakfast cereal off the floor and getting yelled at by his (laughs) mom. Oh, well, I got something to say about that. Uh, but then there are other times, as you know, if you if you engage him in more of a roundabout conversation, he reveals what everything is really about and what they really mean to him. Yeah. And I and I think of how you noted uh, in the interview, you noted there's, a, there's an awful lot of close-ups in Vice, an awful lot, especially for him. And even he seemed confused in response to that as to why he made that choice. He just kind of, he rambled something about how it's like, yeah, there's a lot of close-ups in Inherent Vice, aren't there? It uh, wasn't really by design, but right here, and he held his like his hands right up above his face, he's like, that always seemed the best place to be. Uh, you know, a lot of these locations, there's not much to look at. They're kind of dingy little motel rooms and apartments and stuff. So, plus, what's better than a Jenna Malone close-up? Not much. Pretty, pretty high on the list of great things. And I remember reading this interview five years, five and a half years ago after the film was out and seeing him talk about people's faces like that. And it struck yeah. me. This movie isn't about corruption or politics or the death of the 1960s or Nixon for PTA. It's just about the people who are lost in loss. It's just it's a people movie. And then I realized all his movies are people movies. They're not idea movies.
3: I would argue uh, and this really, really hit me last night when I was watching it again after I hadn't seen it for a few years. It's It's both it's about it's about all those things that you said it
2: wasn't but at a human scale but, but filtered through the prism yeah. of the people it's how they're seeing it it's not about yeah. us seeing it happen to them it's how they're seeing it happen and like and like i hate to keep you know bringing up um, the
3: the patron saint of all things great and cinematic jonathan demi
2: oh bring uh, him up as much as you can please
3: okay yeah thank you uh, but like i i almost feel like there's so many filmmakers who grew up with Kubrick as a template. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not saying this as an insult because I love Kubrick's work and I go back to it. And um, I, I do think there's a human heart there. There's not, it's not a film. Those films aren't made by brains and jars. They're made by a human being, <laughs> but, um, but you can tell when somebody like Paul Thomas Anderson has grown up watching Jonathan Demme as much, if not more than, than Kubrick, because it, it really is not just about those great Demi close-ups. And like, I, I'm going to go to my grave saying this, there is no better American filmmaker in the last 50 years uh, in terms of close-ups than Jonathan Demi. But who really kind of pays attention to like what it actually means to try and capture a human experience on screen. What it actually means to stare into those, you know, faces 20 feet high in front of you being projected onto a wall and not just see like, wow that's a hell of a cut or wow that's a hell of a shot like to to really kind of experience what these people are doing and to to give them a canvas i mean he gives the human jonathan demi gives the human face a canvas that most filmmakers give to to battle scenes exactly and, and to like monument valley and to him like that's his landscape and and pta really picked up on that you know as much as he picked up on all those other tricks and ticks of great 70s filmmakers that he used in his early work, that's really where you get Inherent Vice to me is really the movie, even more so in the Master, which is also filled with close-ups galore, where he really kind of takes that lesson and makes it he like takes it to like he, he uses it. He he makes it his own.
2: And you also feel the pure childlike joy of a through and through born and bred movie fan and fanatic in that part of the, all of what you just said is yes i think is 100% true but i think that there there's also that in in addition to his that cosmic humanism and these people movies there's just such a film fan behind the camera of this film going look at all of these movie stars look at them i have all of their faces you better believe i am going to shoot josh Brolin's big like <laughs> leg, lego character shaped head i am going to put that at, Top to bottom, chin to flat top, it's gonna fill the entire screen because I have access to this face. I've got, oh my God, I've got Eric Roberts, I've got Martin Short, I've got Catherine Waterston, I've got Joaquin Phoenix, I've got Reese Witherspoon. I have like a, I've got like two or three or four or five different Mount Rushmores of modern American actors just sitting here. You better believe it's just gonna be their faces. I don't need the ocean all that much. I don't need L. Cap 1970s L. A. It's it's just it's to me I just I, it's like a kid in a candy store sometimes watching this movie this guy who's just enthralled thrall with look at all of the movie stars look at all of the actors look at the cinema history running like, through my screen
3: I mean movie stars as a means to an end as opposed to the end like and that was another thing with Demi I think I think this came up maybe it was in the Matt Dolarsay episode that you guys talked about this where it you said the same thing about Demi and I remember thinking like thinking about Demi's version of the Manchurian Candidate. And Demi doesn't have a crush on Denzel Washington. Demi Demi is really excited about what Denzel Washington can bring to that character. Yeah. And he's using the frame to express that. And I feel the same thing with The Master and especially Inherent Vice, again, because just more close-ups galore. It's less about like, oh my God, guys, I got Reese Witherspoon, you know? Or even with <laughs> Magnolia where it's like, oh my God, guys, I got Tom Cruise. It's really more about like, I think he's just kind of, in awe of what they can do. Yeah. And not yeah. even just in awe of what they can do to service his vision, for he is the Lord and Messiah and auteur you know, God love the, you know, get your monographs started now. Ye, you know, holy filmmaker is entering the building. It's not about that, uh, with him. It feel, it really does feel like like holy shit, check this out, check out yeah. what this person's doing as opposed to. Oh my God! Look at these great toys in this incredible train set that I've got.
2: Um, no, I I, mean, I, I feel
3: like that makes a huge difference.
2: That's what I mean. I mean, I don't feel like he's like George Lucas in uh, nineteen ninety-nine with just look what this camera can do. Look what this look look what this zero and this one can do. I'm sorry, sorry if there's any Phantom Menace fans out there. Uh, but there is there is huge just that overlap. Joy.
3: Huge overlap with Inherent Vice and Phantom Menace fans, I'm sure.
2: <laughs> but I'm there is just. <laughs> Oh, be nice. Be nice to Billy. I love Billy.
3: There is,
2: there is some. There is just that 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 joy of just like look at them do what they do, because I I mean I definitely think he's an appreciator of actors above all other. But as he says, you know, uh, I love that line. He's like, "What's better than a Jenna Malone close-up? Not much. Pretty high on the list of great things." You know, so many. There's so many directors would be like, no, no, get the get the big opening shot of there will be blood. But I love how this Anderson at this point's career is like, no, just give me a big close up of Jenna Malone with big fake teeth. That's what. That's all I need.
3: Well, and the funny thing too is like, I mean, I can't speak. I can only speak for myself. But it's it's uh, hearing lines like that in an interview or elsewhere where you suddenly like your inner cynic comes out and you're like, really, really, there's nothing. There's nothing better than a Jenna Malone close up. Okay, cool. <laughs> And then you see the Jenna Malone close-up that he puts in that film. And, you know, it's, it's Robert Elswit making, you know, shooting it through this, like, you know, dingy faded kind of the Kodachrome of, of your memory of the 70s yeah. look. And it's still like, you're like, oh my God, yeah, you're right. Like, there really is nothing better than a close-up of Jenna Malone. The way you presented it in this narrative, in this story, framed within this context of, what her character is going through and why she needs Sportello to, to go find this you know missing piece of her life, you're like, Jesus Christ, of course there's nothing
2: more beautiful than this. Like, he, <laughs> it's he, magic. Yeah. It's magic. That's that's what it is. It's magic. There's so much heart and humanity and empathy in that moment against that blasted out milk white wall in the middle of like a, what looks like a Thursday afternoon in LA. Yeah. It, it, that should be the ugliest scene in the movie. No, not because of her face, obviously, but just because of the composition, the... The, the gaudy dress that she's wearing the bad dye job the the blank white wall and somehow it's it's a piece of just human magic
3: i have and, no idea whether this is true or not but i you know uh, this is very much a print the legend moment for me he had talked about uh in an interview coming across some old stock that he had in yeah. the garage from magnolia and how they had shot a couple of roles i don't know if they were test rolls or actual film roles i'm guessing they were test rolls. But he shot it and was sort of like, oh, yeah, this is exactly the look that, you know, we want, you know, and if we have to fix, if we can't use these rolls because they're too unstable and we have to fix it with timing and, you know, how it's printed and all that kind of stuff, that's what we're going to do. But I, I just kind of love the serendipity of that, of finding yeah. this old stuff and, and being sort of like, oh, yeah, this looks exactly like my memories. And that's what I'm trying to capture here. So, like, let's let's do that.
2: And indeed, uh some of that film was used to shoot scenes from the film. He hasn't said what the scenes are, but reportedly, if you want to go with that print the legend story, uh, some of the scenes in the film are shot on that exact stock from his garage. And oh, a yeah, real, a real inherent vice.
3: Cameos, All the Thomas Pinchon cameos. God,
2: <laughs> I was going to say, a real inherent vice nerd doesn't care about what scene Thomas Pinch on, may or may not be hiding man. about lurking around the perimeter. The man, real man. inherent vice nerd is trying to suss out which scenes are shot on that antiquated film stock. I have an opinion, I think it's at the Macy's outside of North Hollywood at the end of the movie where they do the, the Golden Fang uh, credit card swap. That's, that's my guess. It looks very, it's, it's just too, it's just too Vilmos flashed out long goodbye looking. It's, it's, it's gotta be that scene, but that's, that's, a, that's a we're gonna save that for that episode. All of that was to say, as, I was, as I'm talking about what the film must mean to him about being a people movie, uh, I'm, I'm, as someone who clearly and righteously and justifiably has done a lot of thinking on Paul Thomas Anderson. And this is, I, I would argue his most prismic movie in that it can mean so many different things to different people. What is Inherent Vice to you? Is it a neo-noir? Is it a romance? Is it a crime movie, a comedy, stoner film? Is it any of those things? Is it all of the above? Is it something else? What is it to you?
3: Uh, it's a great ode to regret.
2: Bless your heart. You are a man after my own heart. You're exactly right.
3: It's What's a it's said. a great ode to. Um, I don't want to. I'm trying to. I don't want to crib somebody else's lines, but uh, but Matt said it really beautiful in his review. Matt Zolderside said it really beautiful in his review where he goes, and I, I can't. I'm paraphrasing. I can't quote it from memory, unlike you. Uh, uh, something about like the road's not taken, the regret, the love, the love's not fulfilled the loves are uh, requited um it, it really is all about about those things it, it's not just a fading away i mean we're going to talk about this in the scene that i was lucky enough to get where joanna Newsom has the the narration about he didn't know whether the pool was filled with water but he bounced on the diving board and just cannonballed in like to me that really brings to mind that great Hunter S. Thompson quote about the wave, the wave of the counterculture, kind of breaking and cresting, and how um, how it really feels like it's this moment where the the hangover is beginning. The 70s hangover is beginning, but you're you're really seeing you're seeing all the stuff that didn't get fulfilled and everything that's left over. You're seeing the the haze of the you're seeing the smoggy haze of the sun setting as opposed to the sun rising.
2: Well, hell, I think we can just end the episode now. That's everything. That's it. That's it. Yeah, actually, I do want to, before we jump into the scene proper, uh, and have fun with, God, there's there's so much there. There's there's, there's Penny, there's Bigfoot, there's dead partners, there's, <laughs> uh, uh, as you said, there's that great sort of Legion narration as Doc makes his yeah. leap into the dark. There's uh, the phrase, a patchouli fart. Um, so I'm going to make one of those massive pretentious film writer leaps, uh, in which I make a super spurious connection that sort of kind of sounds good, but then really falls apart, uh, uh, when anything more than a slightly superficial inspection takes place upon it. I mentioned earlier how you noted that, the uh, PTA reveals his thinking in this kind of roundabout way when you talk to him in the interview setting. And when you asked him what the seventies meant to him versus what the, come down, paranoid drag of the 70s meant to Thomas Pinchon, uh, PTA just kind of shrugged and said, when he thinks of the 70s, he thinks of pouring himself some milk and cereal on the floor, pouring them out on the flat floor uh, to eat. And he says, I think of my, my mother coming down and saying, what the fuck are you doing? And handing me a vacuum, yelling, clean it up. You made this mess. You're going to clean it up. And because I am an obsessive, obsessive human being, clearly, because look at what I'm doing. Look at what we're talking about. So I'm going to cut back to his mom saying, clean it up. You made this mess. You're going to clean it up. And isn't that kind of an answer to what inherent vice is? It's about things going bad on your watch. Uh, Messes being messes being made. See, I told you, I told you I was going for a reach here. I'm doing the film writer thing. Mess is being made because you were looking at something else. So much of the book seems to be in a rage at the counterculture and progressive movement of the 1960s that failed to see its own doom was plotted years before it even began. And in the film, that same mood seems to exist both in Doc and Shasta's relationship, but also in the herky-jerky plotting that erupts in our scene. In our scene today, in which Doc realizes that the real plot, the real mystery, was never with Shasta Faye, it was never with Mickey Wolfman, it was right here with Adrian Prussia and Bigfoot and a dead cop named Vincent Indelicato. All this shit that went down when Doc was chasing lazy circles around Shasta, or as PTA's mom would say, you made this mess, you're gonna clean it up. That tracks, right? Am I being really, really pretentious, even for a podcast about I mean, hair advice? That kind of track. First
3: off, like you talk about making these huge, pretentious, like film nerd leaps, and I get accused of that on Twitter on a weekly basis. So, like, you're going to find a sympathetic heart to any sort of massive film nerd leap of logic you make here.
2: Thanks, guys Because that was a big off, one.
3: I don't think that's off at all. I don't think that's off at all. I think it's a really actually it's actually a very interesting reading of it, um, and I'm I'm glad you brought up. I feel, in a weird way, I feel like there's a, a generational divide, because when you read the book, I'm 100% with you on the uh, about the book being filled with a certain kind of rage, because you're talking about somebody who lived through the 60s, yeah. saw those ideals curdle, and may still be kind of angry, it, whether, I have no idea whether Thomas Pynchon believed in the promise of the 60s or not, had any chips on that table whatsoever. Um, having read his books, I can I can kind of guess, but like, but there is a, there's a real sense of rage of like, like you had this, you had this chance to do this and look how you fucked this up. Whereas with uh, somebody who was born in 1970 and is, you know, and, and granted, like I'm a, I'm a year younger than Paul Thomas Anderson. So when he talks about the seventies being, you know, uh, I was watching cartoons and I had my cereal on the floor and then in another interview, he's talked about like, oh yeah, it's so great. You go to Zodis to like get a TV, and I was like, (laughs) I want the Zodis to get a TV, like, you're talking my language. Uh, There really is this sense of like, you know, I don't think of the 70s as a metaphor. You know, I wasn't thinking about Watergate when I was, you know, four years old. I was thinking about what cartoons I was gonna watch. You don't think of the 70s as a metaphor, you think of the 70s as your childhood. And there is, in one respect, uh, a very, a very um, palpable sense of nostalgia. Uh, and that he's recreating in the same way that I feel like Tarantino is telling a story about the end of the 60s and telling a story, telling, making a love letter to a certain era of Hollywood passing in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, while also kind of reveling in this sort of nostalgia for a Hollywood that he sort of remembers in the, the windmills of his mind. Uh, but by the same token, I also feel that like Paul Thomas Anderson is very, very keyed into that notion, not just of the rage, but like of the sense of, uh, of promises not kept and roads not taken and things kind of falling apart on, uh, on your watch. And I feel in that way, it's very personal. It's not a nostalgic thing at all. And In a certain way, it almost could have been made in any era, not just the yeah. 70s.
2: Exactly. Uh, yeah. It's about, yeah, and, it, and it, as you said, going back to that, it's about the regret. It's about the regret of knowing that. It's yeah. about the regret of knowing that something went down on your watch and you were looking way over there but right. everything else was happening right here in front of you. And you just never exactly. saw
3: it. And I don't think you need to be four years old and wanting to turn the TV off the Watergate hearing. So you could watch Rocky and Bullwinkle to feel, that. I feel <laughs> that. That's a universal, like, you know, to have loved and lost is a universal thing that isn't, isn't tied to one era. Um, and in that way, it also makes it a very personal film for him. Although, you know, I can't ascribe any, you know, I can't tell you like, Oh, this is what he says, you know, loss. This is exactly what he's talking about. It really is this kind of palpable sense that you get when um, the universal feeling of having a tooth not in your mouth anymore and running your tongue over <laughs> the absence of it, over that hole. That really, to me, is what that film feels like on a, a much larger and very beautifully set-designed scale.
2: Wow, you're just beating me at my own game left and right here. What a what a what a great metaphor for this. Film. It's, it's the Bigfoot beverage. I, <laughs> like, <that's> the Bigfoot <laughs> wow, beverage. you you've really down to that sucker too.
3: Well, hmm. I should I should note for people listening in podcast land that there was a very large
2: ice cube. <laughs> well, that, that's fair. So you're not cheating. All right. Fair enough. With all that said, I think it's time that we dive into this scene in which Doc recognizes something's gone down on his watch and he's yeah. got to clean the milk up. It's time to clean that shit up.
4: Whoa. What are you doing
2: Whoa? here? Yeah. Well, let's uh, see if you're free for dinner. I'm going to freak you out. Are you all right? Am I? Are you? Should I call security?
4: <laughs> Never. No, I
1: don't think we
4: This is the one I was telling you about. Yeah?
1: You know who your pals had Mickey Wolfman.
4: What? The FBI? I, I mean, we suspected, but we couldn't prove it. Well,
1: I saw him in their custody. You
4: saw him? Yeah. Would you be willing to let me depone
1: you? Sure would. You would? What is it?
4: You, me, a tape machine, maybe another DDA to witness it.
1: All right, listen, I need something from you, though. What? I need to look up somebody's jacket.
4: That's it? That's no big deal. We do that all the time.
3: What, you break into officially sealed records all the time?
4: Grow up. What's the name on the file? Adrian Prussia. As if looking for something he didn't want to find, it became clear as vodka you keep in the icebox that whatever the connection between the LAPD and Adrian Prussia, he might as well have been working for them as a contract killer, doing deeds for them that they couldn't do for themselves. Time after time, he was pulled in, questioned, arraigned, indicted, no matter. Somehow the cases never quite got to trial, each being bargained down in the interests of justice, not to mention Adrian, who invariably walked. And one of those deeds appeared to be labeled the justifiable homicide of one of the LAPD's very own. Vincent and Delicato, otherwise known as Bigfoot's partner. Bigfoot. Bigfoot's partner? Fucking Bigfoot's partner?
1: Oh,
4: fuck. Bigfoot's air of possessed melancholy now began to make sense. This was morning, all right. And it was deep. Is she a new partner, Bigfoot? Want a banana, Adrian? Bend over and I'll stick it in for you. Fuck you and fuck your banana.
1: Oh man,
4: oh man, never be surprised at the levels of disrespect within the LAPD. But this was downright nasty, not to mention unprofessional. This bond between partners was nearly the only thing Doc had ever found to admire about the LAPD. There's places you don't want to go, Doc.
1: Go back to the beach. You smell like a patchouli fart.
4: So here's Doc. Midnight. Pitch dark. Can't remember whether they drained the pool
2: or not. Before we we really get into the the deep and dark and murky waters here, and there are a lot, I want to mention something. Uh, it's 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 such a wasted phrase to say this is a favorite moment of mine in this movie because I say it every fucking episode but a favorite moment of mine is in this scene right here. Uh, There's a there's a moment in your interview with PTA when you're talking about uh, how Joaquin is an actor who will always bring a director back something new something different each take and pta's (laughs) response to that was yeah he's like a dog that'll fetch that ball over and over and over again you can throw it down the cliff you can throw it into the snow you can throw it into the ocean he will go get that ball he'll bring it back and he will curl up in your lap and keep you warm by the fire he's the best dog i've ever had which i feel like only he could say that and not sound like a total asshole because you can hear the smirk in it uh the best joaquin phoenix is the best dog i ever had there is a reason why i was not disappointed when news came out that robert when this when the the film was first in early pre-production the rumors were that robert downey jr was going to play doc and i was actually not very excited about that because i i think he's a great performer but i feel like we would already seen him make this kind of movie in kiss kiss bang bang and i didn't want to see that part two Uh, I, I didn't want to see him do that again. I wanted to see something different. And what I think is very special about Joaquin Phoenix, even though I think we view him as such an intense and dark performer, that in a lot of ways, this performance feels like an outlier in his filmography. The reason I love him in this film is because he does bring that shaggy dog, warm dog energy to this film, specifically in one of my favorite beats which is he bursts into Penny Kimball's office and he makes it clear, I've seen, I've seen Wolfman with the FBI. I know it for a fact. And when she says, will you let me depone you? And his response is, sure would, what is it? Like The fact that he's so willing to be cool and loyal and helpful, but then doesn't even know what he's saying yes to, but he's got that loyal dog energy. Sure would, what is it? There's, I love that, that he's a loyal dog he's a loyal dog and he brings that to, to doc as a character. And I, and I love that so much. I just had to mention that moment. It's so adorable to me. I'm glad you did because before we get into the, the kind of tonal setup of this scene,
3: I mean, the scene that I was really happy that you actually gave me the scene, uh, even though it sets up, it sets up what I feel is an even more key scene that comes after it. I was actually happy to get the assist as opposed to the dunk uh, <laughs> because um Before we start talking about that, let's talk about this performance here, because there are so many actors that would have played this Lebowski. They would have gone full metal Lebowski on this. And it's not to say anything bad or derisive about Jeff Bridges' portrayal of Lebowski. I love that movie. I love him as an actor, and I love that performance. But I feel like that's the kind of thing where 99% of actors would have seen that script, would have gone, oh, I got this. I get it. And they would have... They would have played him dumb or they would have played him dumb stoned or dumb stoned and horny like he essentially would have been a creature of his appetites and nothing but Mm -hmm. whereas there's a joaquin plays him with this weird balance where you understand that yes he is a stoned hippie in 1970 who is partaking in the new freedoms perhaps a little too much at times um but he's not an idiot he's not a buffoon and he's not a fool and there's so many line readings there's so many weird grace notes that he has in that performance specifically even before you get to the scene where um you you realize he's playing he's not playing uh doc as a as a caricature and it would be so easy so, so easy fucking easy to play doc as a caricature and he doesn't do it And um, that's one of those moments. That's one of those moments where you could see, like, I think it takes a real actor to make a snack out of a line or a performance rather than a meal. Like, I, I think it's really to understand that you're actually like playing the human being and not the performance or playing, you're not even playing the beats. You're actually playing somebody who you have a real sense of how rich this person's inner life is. And you get that. You get that in that line reading he has.
2: I don't know if this is quite the right way to word it but I agree with you I think that despite the epic scale of its thematic interests and reach this is a very this is this is a very minor key film and I think in in the filmography that it is a part of it's a minor key film emotionally I don't think it is but I think just in general it's a minor key film and I think part of what you are saying applies to joaquin's performance in that he is willing to do the minor key moments that are far more human yeah. than the big, broad walking with the uh Val Kilmer in the Doors Jim's Jim Morrison Stoner walk, where he's he's t- always off kilter and a different a totally different X and Y axis than everyone else in that film, or doing the Lebowski thing for goofs and laughs, which is amazing when Jeff Bridges does it, but it's only appropriate for that film. Yeah. And as far also, I think, far more nuanced than people give it credit for. But that it is a willingness just to have minor key human moments and not a performance full of the, the Daffy Duck rabbit punch that he does when he gets hit in the head with a baseball bat, belonging to the subject of this scene. That he's willing just to have a, a wonderful human. You know, Doc's just a, he's, he's not a do gooder, but he does good and he's just wanting to help his girl out. Yeah, sure would.
3: Yeah, and there's a precedent it? for it. And I'm saving that, I'm saving the revelation of that precedent for the end of talking about this scene because it leads into the next scene. Oh so let's boy. start with how this scene begins. All right. Are you all right? Am I? <laughs> so here's what here's how this scene begins. Uncertainty and an inherent sense of menace, right? Kind of genius how you're setting this scene up, Mr. Anderson. Not to mention the fact that you have your consistent ace in the hole. One of the most invaluable col- uh, collaborators that he's ever met, um, Johnny Greenwood suddenly turning them like the dread button on the sound on the score just ever so slightly so that it's not this uh operatic dun-dun-dun kind of thing but if you listen very carefully to it it almost feels it feels closer to um to vitamin c that you know one of the songs that opens up the film this weird kind of like throbbing slightly funky sense of menace but there's still there's still dread um which then leads into him being like, "I, you know, this is the guy I was talking about. What's what's she been saying? What's been going on?" Okay, the other guy leaves, uh, and he goes, "I've seen, uh, you know, I've I've seen him. He's here. This is where they're keeping him. We all know that it's it's part of this vast conspiracy that, as viewers, we can barely get a handle on, but we understand is 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 deep, with tentacles that are long and wide, and then, uh, and then it gets the great." a great moment again uh, so many actors would have overplayed this and he doesn't where uh she go? he goes i need to get some jackets and she's like yeah no problem
2: we do that all the time
3: we do all the time and he's like you pull classified papers all the time
2: <laughs> you break into and, officially sealed records like he's so exactly, shocked
3: <laughs> exactly and she, i i keep waiting for her to go like who's being naive now kate i keep yeah. thinking that's what the response <laughs> is gonna be um but one of the things I love about this sequence besides we get the return of the filleted chocolate banana is that it starts to it reminds you that as much as you want to think that um, that doc is kind of a kind of an airhead that he is kind of this sort of like congenial stoner that seems to have fallen into this business of helping people out and finding people is that he's actually a private detective. It begins to remind you that he um, before you start to get some more exposition in the next scene that sort of confirms that you know he's been doing this for a second or two, it really starts to remind you that this is a guy who has a job and does this job and can often seem like he's slightly baked but is still is still doing his job and um, and which is crucial when you get to the scene that follows this. It's a really beautiful kind of setup. And uh not to mention the fact that like it really represents a big revelation in terms of the narrative, in so much as there's Oh my god, there's a narrative here. I mean such as a, there is one. And one there, one is of a there is kind of rotating narratives that are happening in this <laughs> thing where you you suddenly understand that um this beautifully pinch character named Vincent Indelicato. Delicato uh is uh, is tied in. He's not only tied in, but this ties in Bigfoot, and this suddenly makes everything feel so much more personal, um, which then, and then brings back in, um, oh god, why can't I think of the assassin's name? This is so embarrassing.
2: Buck Beaverton, Adrian Prussia.
3: Adrian Prussia, thank you, Uh, which then brings him back in, and then brings in uh, Bigfoot and his oral fixation once more, (laughs) brings in the, the classic uh, ever quotable line: "Fuck you and fuck your banana," and uh, and then brings back in the you know it, it basically puts him on uh, it puts Sportello on the trajectory that he uh, he needs to go through in order to kind of s- start wrapping things up the sort of first baby step towards towards really fully kind of losing his innocence and then sort of playing the I guess. I'm going to mix metaphors here of losing his innocence and then uh, playing the long game.
2: I like it. I'll take yeah. it. Yeah. And you're exactly right. I, I also think that I've said this, there's a couple scenes that are like this in the, in the, in the film, which is we got to admit it's not for everybody. This movie, uh, this is, and this is one of those scenes where I think this is one of the definite concrete scenes that loses people really shakes audience members uh, out of whatever comfort zone they might be in. Um, it's, a, it's a scene in which a lot of tumblers in the cosmic lock uh, that is Inherent Vice, they start to fall into place. As you said, um, it connects Mickey Wolfman to the FBI, the FBI to the LAPD, the LAPD to Adrian Prussia, Prussia to Bigfoot, Bigfoot to Indelicato, and Indelicato back to Beaverton and Beaverton finally to Coy Harlingen. And it's the moment where you realize that all of these lines of force are actually these intersecting circles. They're, they were never the parallel, the like with any true Raymond Chandler story, they were never parallel tracks. They were always these intersecting circles. We just couldn't stand back far enough yeah. to see where, where the intersections occurred. But I think one of the reasons that that this moment where we are getting that Chandler moment, where we're like, sweet, sweet Jesus, this is all one goddamn case in which it all connects, is that I think one of the, 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 the bits of magic and the miracles of this film is that it is so entrenched in Doc's point of view. When Doc is confused about shit, we the audience are confused about shit. When yeah. Doc is learning something for the first time, we're learning, learning about it the first time. We never have that Hitchcockian sense of we know the bomb is under the seat. We, we don't find out about it until it blows up in Doc's face because it's blowing yeah. up in our face. And I think that one of the reasons that this sequence throws people is, Doc might realize it just a little bit before us in the, the last scene, in which uh, he's talking to sort and he's the thing he can't let go of is the little kid blues and sax players. And she says, go get him." Is, I think that this is just like doc does. This is the moment where the audience goes, oh, I, I was starting to think that this was like a Save your girlfriend movie. This isn't that movie at all. Like I was watching, the, I think there were people who were watching this going, I was watching this thinking this is gonna be, I'm gonna, he's gonna rescue his girl you and that's the movie. And and this scene this scene which starts throwing all sorts of crazy uh Pinchanian names at you, including of characters we've still never seen on screen, uh, like in Delicato, who we never meet. Uh, it's um, I think it's almost too much. And people are like, wait, wait, wait. It's not about the girl. It's not. But,
3: but, nor is it. Nor is it uh, to to paraphrase a, a wise man, a femme fatales be crazy kind of movie either. <laughs> no, it's either not even when you get the necklace reference in the next sequence, like there's never, there's also never the sense that, you know, Shasta is this kind of black widow character that's been playing him all along. In a, in a lot of ways, she seems just as kind of lost and out of uh, out of her depth and as fucked up as, as he is. Uh, so it doesn't, so often when you get those film noir films, uh, which, you know, I love to death and watch endlessly, there really is the sense where you you feel that like, Wow, dude! Like, God, dudes had some stuff to work out in the '40s, didn't they? Like they really <laughs> had some, like Freudian flotsam and jetsam to get through. Jeez, Louise, get out of the web, man! They're not. She's not gonna mate with you and bite off your head. For fuck's sake! Uh, you never get that about Shasta. Uh, thank God. No, uh, because I feel like that would be. Uh, I don't. It, it doesn't track with Catherine Watterson's performance whatsoever in my mind. Uh, but. Um, but the, the, there's there's two things about this sequence that I really love. One is that uh, it it gives you one of it gives you one of my favorite shots in Anderson's catalog whatsoever, and that is uh, Doc prone in the middle of a walkway. Yeah, Pops walk around him, covering his hindquarters like a, like an animal, like. Like a like a dog, like a dog in, that yeah. will fetch you, like a dog that will <laughs> constantly bring back the bone for you, and and bring you every time, and and. Dude, he did. You. He
2: brought it but, back. He brought it back. That's what, um,
3: that's... There, and you know, it it doesn't it doesn't track with the sequence we've seen earlier in the film, mm-hmm. where he's walking down that thing and gets bumped by the cops. Uh, it it's almost this weird kind of like mood shot that gets dropped in yeah. here. Couldn't feel more, couldn't feel more 1992 to me or 1970 to me for <laughs> 2014 to me, or for fuck's sake, 2020 to me whatsoever. Oh, um, like, it's just one of those sequences where um, you, you see, it, you're those images where you see it and you just go like, oh, oh God, yeah. Uh, clearly happening in his mind's eye, clearly not actually happening because you yeah. just didn't see him walking up the thing. But then the second thing it does, um, to kind of build on what I was saying before about setting up Doc as a private eye, is this is, it's the, it's the tee up for the next sequence in which you were reminded that, um, that Doc is not only a private eye, he's not an ineffectual private eye. And the thing I keep going back to, the more I watch this film and the more I, we get to that sequence, which I don't, wanna, I don't wanna steal the thunder whoever is lucky enough to get this next part, but like the thing I keep going back to is the moment in at the end of a long goodbye. You're fine and whatever. You're always going to be a loser. And then Philip Marlowe, Gold's character, Philip Marlowe shoots him and kills him. And, you know, Robert Altman has the beautiful fuck you of like playing hooray for Hollywood as he walks off. (laughs) For the first time in that movie, for the first time in that movie, you understand why Philip Marlowe is not a patsy. He's been played for a fool, but he's not a fool. And this sequence Especially when he's walking across the street and shat, or, uh, not Shasta, sorry, the um, Joanna Newsom's
2: character. Sort of leash.
3: Thank you. Uh, the narrator is talking about just jumping into that pool blind. Uh, it sets you up to realize that when Puck enters the picture and is going to be going to pose a real threat to uh, to Sportello's well-being, that he can handle himself.
2: You know. Hell, that that's exactly what the. <laughs> that's exactly what we're gonna skip a scene even further down that's uh that's what bigfoot says to him uh i saw you, you on know, the shooting range i saw you on the shooting range i know you i knew you could handle yourself you get him. you get him both doc yep. like just so casual like i knew you would i knew you would i've seen you i've seen your yep. moves i know or i've seen you in action i know you have moves uh i know you're not just a total hippie well and there's that beautiful like just little pinprick of backstory
3: where uh uh the gentleman with the bat goes uh Oh, I remember you. I mean, what are you yeah. doing now? Skip trace? Yeah. He's like, no, I'm a PI. And so you're like, oh, okay, he's been, he's been doing this for a second. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that that kind of sets you up to realize that like he's actually, you know, he's earned his right to be the protagonist and isn't just some sort of ridiculous candide figure that's kind of, you know, waltzing through <laughs> an America, you know, an America with three K's, please, where um, you know. Violating human rights as a God given taxpayer, you know, that's your God given right as a taxpayer. And like any grouping of more than three people is considered a cult. Like he's actually, you know, he's the hero of the film, a tragic hero, but a hero nonetheless.
2: Well, I I think you're exactly right. So much to work with there. And really quick, I do have to say though, uh, uh, when you use that phrase, in the key of Gould, Elliot Gould, if you're out there listening, if you ever release an album of like jazz standards and you (laughs) don't call it Songs in the Key of Gould, what a loss! You know, what you know what it's going to be called, waste. right?
3: You know what it's going to be called—the Gould Standard.
2: Oh, I will take my ten
3: percent commission check uh, at <laughs> an address
2: in Brooklyn. I'll give it to you offline. Mr. Sure, Gould. sure thing. So, oh my God, I, you're you're right, and I don't even think that the the connections between Long Goodbye, that I and, and hair Vice, that I need to to underline them any further because you've done so ably and because i think you know anyone that's seen these films get it but i one thing i will say that i i agree with you with and i don't think it's enough attention for either film is what you highlighted and that is that it's not that these men are fools for a great deal of the film they feel ineffectual because that's kind of the point of the films is they are up against something that is so vast and 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 so vast that it doesn't have it lacks definition it goes it's like space itself it just goes on uh into infinity so you can't get your arms around it to stop it uh uh google does can say Uh, marlo is never gonna solve the 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 Linux murder in time to save terry's wife uh who i don't even think it's a name in the film and it's not like Doc is ever going to defeat the golden thing. And that was never the point. That's it's not there. what these stories were about. But they were, again, back to that cleaning up the milk and the cereal on the floor. It's about the rage and the regret of realizing there's something that something that spilled on your watch and it needs to get cleaned up. You're not going to be able to undo it. You'll never be able to undo it. That, that milk's not going back in the carton. That cereal's not going back in the box those fruit loops are going in the vacuum bag that said that said there is a there is a debt that is owed and there is a rage and a regret and a responsibility that yeah. that binds these men to that debt and makes them aware and i think that that's why doc doc goes keep moving to skip ahead before we work our way back Duck knows who Adrian Press is, and he knows what the bats on that wall mean. And he's probably sitting there beginning to connect some dots to the bump on the back of his head from Channel View Estates and all these bats lining the walls. He knows the potential for annihilation that this meeting has, and he walks into it anyway. It yeah. sort of least, says something to the fact that, you know, well, you know why, why the fuck not? We're on the diving board. You're going to dive in. It's because he knows what he's walking into, but he knows that he has to because he knows that so much of this case has gone sour because of the fact that he wasn't being effectual. Because, and not because he was ineffectual, but because he's looking at the wrong stuff—the detective's curse. The answer is right there. He's not looking at it until it's too. Until it's gone this far. Since and you now it's up, his. Resp- since you bring hmm? up the detective's curse, can I ask you a question? Sure thing.
3: Do you think um, Do you think Inherent Vice is a pessimistic movie the way that something like Night Moves or Chinatown is a pessimistic movie? Or do you think it's an optimistic movie? I mean, it doesn't matter either way, it's still a great film, but I'm just curious what your opinion is.
2: Uh, it's an optimistic, pessimistic movie or it's a pessimistic, optimist film. And, and, and that's not a joke, I don't mean that as a goof. I think it is a film, and that's something I actually do wanna talk about in this scene, so you, you teed me up, thank you so much. It is, I think it is a very despondent and dispirited film about the capital S and T state of things, about the way the world is, about the way the world works, and about the way the nature of power in that world and who that power goes to. And I think it is a very, it's a very ominous and very heavy film, both in its portraiture of something like uh, The Golden Fang. Doc doesn't even come close to even really understanding what that is. Maybe it's a cabal of tax cheat dentists. It's also a heroin trade. It's also the thing that's destroying America's soul through the Vietnam War and the heroin brought in from Southeast Asia. It's it's about men and women and how they fall apart. It's about the entropy. of It's about the inherent vice of time and how time, uh, you know, I, I always mention this line from um, the, the film Irreversible. It's not a film I like to rewatch, but I always... I always remember that title card that says Time Destroys Everything. It's a movie that's literally about how time will destroy every single thing, whether it's a country or a person. And by that measure, it is extraordinarily bleak. Night moves level bleak. Final shot of Popeye Popeye Doyle running in the darkness, firing off his gun at the end of The French Connection. It is that level bleak. But because it is being made with someone with a by someone with a cosmic level of humanism it can't fucking help itself but look at the look at that light in the rear view the rear view window and kind of smile a little bit and be a little hopeful even as it's saying you know me and you this don't mean we're back together but it can't help but can't help but smile at the fact that, that that's being said and i think that there is an inevitable kindness and sweetness and and hopefulness to it even though it's being made by a man who knows how the 70s end up who knows that the golden fang only got golder Uh, look at the look at the unnatural sheen of hair color uh, that adorns the the brain wormed head of our current president it just got golder and golder and golder things just got worse and worse and worse and pta knows that but i do think it is a film that cannot help but hope on a person by person basis, that things might be okay. Inherent vice is going to rob us of everything else, but there is a a belief and a humanism, and I think it all comes down to knowing. And I'm really going off on a thing here. The whole the whole idea of Doc doing what he's doing, saving Koy Harlingen. You know, you know the idea of a you know whatever whatever things he might have done wrong. Uh, a father not being able to see his daughter again, that don't sit right with me.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: He knows he's rescuing a uh, little amethyst Harlingen from the little kid blues for maybe an extra year or two. He knows that the golden fang is still going to break this girl's life the way it breaks all of our lives in, in whatever unique way happens to each of us. He knows that amethyst Harlingen is as doomed as the rest of us to, to the whims of inherent vice. But God damn it, it's not going to happen because of him. And that is, there is a nobility and there is a sweetness, a sweet dog, <laughs> loyal dog kindness that I know life is going to break her, but it's sure as shit not going to happen because I let it do that. I'm yeah. going to stop it here. It'll happen because of something else, but it won't happen because I averted my eyes. And there is a kind of tarnished optimism to that. So that is my very, very long-winded way of define, defending my answer by saying it is a optimistic pessimistic film, and that it, it's a, there's a tarnished hopefulness there. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I always, I always used to think that the
3: only person that was um, that was equipped to bring Pynchon's films to the screen was Jacques Rivette, because Jacques Rivette's one of the few filmmakers who understands yeah. not only understands how conspiracies and, and conspirators work but really sort of like you know gets off on that sort of paranoia like he's he's very fueled by that paranoia or was very fueled by that paranoia especially if you're watching his stuff in the you know late 60s and early 70s but he would have made the golden fang the subject and the golden fang it's not quite a macguffin and it's not the subject of the film the it really is the kind of like it's this sort of vast umbrella it's kind of catch-all term that that
2: stands for um how's it how's he say it in the new york times piece where it's like uh he's like it's this it's this just this this indefinable force that's out there that just somehow manages to always fuck it up for the good guys
3: yep yeah exactly i can't do better than that exactly by the way is there is there a more 2020 question in this film than is there a swastika on that man's face with the answer being perhaps you should pay no attention to that man (laughs) (laughs) so prescient so it's amazing
2: bad. that the the uh, <laughs> the Republican National Committee took their uh, took their response notes <laughs> and their PR notes from this film. Maybe maybe you should pay no attention to that man, and just nervously flop sweat and smile. Pay no maybe, attention maybe, to pay the a, maybe pay no a man behind with swastika tattoo on his face. But, and oh boy, you are bringing up something else too, which is it was not. It was only in 2020 that you know this film has many things. This film has been many things to me. It was never quite a horror film to me until the year 2020. And then it's like, holy shit, this is a goddamn horror. This is an American horror film on one level if you want to watch it like that. And hopefully after 2020 and in the years after 2020, if possible, there will come a time where it won't seem like a horror movie anymore. But I feel like much like probably the audiences, audience members of 1970 would react to this film. You watch it now and it's, it's, it's a fucking horror film because yeah. it's, it's where we are. It's where you at, man. Now, we're talking about uh, uh, you talking about revet and conspiracies. I want to I want to do a little bit of house cleaning because that's exactly what this scene does with this massive a bomb of an exposition drop that this film makes It's made it's made really clear here uh, in this sequence that Bigfoot has been pushing Doc towards Adrian Prussia over and over throughout the film he does it on phone calls. He does it uh, over, over pancakes. Uh, he keeps, <laughs> uh, he keeps pushing doc for, for reasons unknown and reasons suspicious to doc uh, to take a look at Adrian Prussia specifically because in, in Bigfoot's logic is here. Oh, well, you know, you should do it because his, his right-hand man, Puck Beaverton was at the scene of this Harlingen overdose that you won't shut up about. And if that's what you care about, you should look in, the you should look into Beaverton. If you're looking into Beaverton, you gotta look into Prussia. And 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 here it is that we, we we finally discover the reasons why it's not just that Bigfoot's trying to be a big uh, a good guy as he says earlier in the film. Sometimes it's just about doing the right thing. Uh, he's not just trying to do the right thing by Harlingen. It's here that we learn that Adrian Prussia is a contract killer for the LAPD, which is actually kind of naive and quaint in 2020 uh, when you know the LAPD would just send out its own personal murder squad of LAPD officers. Yeah, it
3: seems um, inter- redundant.
2: <laughs> it's yeah. it's sad that adrian prussia is kind of quaint and naive in 2020 oh they would hire they would outsource murder no they, they, they have their own internal gang that would do that but uh, that one of the killings committed for the lapd by adrian prussia was that of officer vincent and delicado partner to bigfoot bjornson and as i said in that very raymond chandler-esque way that the pinch both winks at and lovingly embraces in the in the book and in the and also gets done in the film all the plenitude of Doc's cases become one uber case and it all connects. But it also connects thematically here in that this is what finally and conclusively, for me, links Bigfoot and Doc as the same guy. As, as two sides, they are two sides of a fun house mirror looking at each other, in that they are both men mourning loss of a partner. And by the way that Bigfoot goes at those bananas, probably a romantic partner. Not not just a not just a, a boy in blue, and this Doc's LAPD arch nemesis, this guy that we thought was maybe even going to be a villain if you hadn't read the book, uh, unbeknownst to either of them until this moment, Bigfoot is his spiritual brother and shadow self in this this joint struggle they have against the inherent vice of time. This is the scene that weds these two men, um, and I think that that so much of that explains what we see elsewhere in the film whether it's doc at mickey wolfman's house looking in a closet full of ties and he's able just to shudder and go and then he goes outside bigfoot That he could sense him or in the second to last scene of this film where they start speaking the same they are they're literally vibrating on the same atomic level speaking the same words to them and i think it's because going back to what you said this is a film about fucking regret it's about letting the wrong things happen on your watch and just as uh, just as doc let this Harlingen case go so wrong because he was chasing Shasta and likely some whatever went wrong with him and Shasta went wrong because he wasn't paying attention there but perhaps to who she really was so too the the central heartbreak of Bigfoot's life occurred because he wasn't with Vincent Indelicato when he got killed when Indelicato was looking up who this Prussia character was and what what his connection was to the LAPD Bigfoot wasn't there and some horrible horrible shit went down his partner died because of it and now he's got to clean it up in his own very cowardly style by pushing Doc at it instead of dealing with himself and there's there's such a darkness and a sorrow to that
3: look chocolate's gonna melt glass is gonna (laughs) show.
2: Hearts are gonna break
3: and regrets are just you know part of the part of the program. Um, I, I I've never quite bought the notion that they're the two sides of the same coin thing. Uh, although I I love I love the notion that um, this is one more thing that humanizes a character that could have very well not been humanized whatsoever. That could have been just like you know officer authoritarian flat top USA
2: on the page bigfoot bjornson should not work as a three-dimensional film character he yeah. should not work he at best should come off as a ralph meeker caricature he should not function as a living breathing human being and, yet he yeah, and,
3: and also like scenes like his wife yelling into the phone you know
2: <laughs> i ask you for one
3: fucking day a week christian one fucking day a week from you uh saying, like, you know, have you seen the therapy bills? You're like, oh, Bigfoot goes to therapy, huh? Uh, you know, they shouldn't, it, it shouldn't track whatsoever. It should be a joke.
2: You yeah. know, it
3: should be, it should be
2: a... And we think a, it is at first. We think it is.
3: Yeah. But no, he's um, and the, it, it, I I like the, I think maybe part of the reason I don't buy this, the, you know, two sides of the same coin thing is that... How dare you? I have a real... <laughs> and with that, he was kicked off the show. <laughs> is that um, in, a, in a way, I don't want to say cheapens, but it, in a way it, it, it kind of, it slightly robs the power of a line that comes near the end of the film that I have a lot of fondness for, where he goes, uh, it's okay, brother. And he goes, I'm not your brother. And he goes, no, but you need a keeper. Oh, God. And in in a certain way, like there's a there's a kind of, there's a, there's like a gentle sympathy and empathy that he has for Bigfoot. Whereas if you boil it down to like, they're two sides of the same coin. It's like, Oh, well, he's not just loving Bigfoot. He's loving himself, man. You know, <laughs> sound of large joint being poked in dorm room. Uh, it's, it really is more like, no, like in a way, like it makes him so much more of a tragic character because Sportello is mourning the tragic character. He's not mourning himself. And when you just see this, this confused, this, the, the half of the generation gap that's on the wrong side of history, shoving marijuana into his mouth and walking out in this kind of angry, rage-filled, stoned haze into what's gonna be the last you know, three decades of the 20th century. Three decades that are going to, in a lot of ways, like make people like Bigfoot obsolete in the same way that they make, you know, the movie stars of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood slightly obsolete, um, it just, that to me just strikes me, it adds such a depth to that character and makes it so much more tragic that um, I never want to, uh, I never want to be the sort of like, oh, it's his young Ian shadow self. Like that may very well be true. There I just you don't are. want to believe it. Like that's just, <laughs> it, you no, know, it no, says more about that. me than it says about anything else.
2: I get that. I think for me, the reason I think it works so well is it's not just a shadow self to Doc. I think that thematically, every character in this film in, a, in some way is like a shadow self to Doc. And Doc is a shadow of them because everyone in this film is in the thrall of total and utter loss. And I think to me that, that, that except is, for that Harry. is, except for, except, Newsom. except for Newsom. But of course we have to argue as to whether or not she even exists. Because oh
3: heavy the, Far the out, film, man.
2: The, film does, heavy. <laughs> the film does not exactly make a conclusive case that she is a living breathing human being the way that she is in the novel um but in the film anyone that we deal with whether well anyone that is not an uh, an arm of the fang itself is dealing with loss some someone they have lost something time has taken something from them whether it's Hope having her husband taken away, Coy having his dream of cleaning up his family taken away, and then that literally having his family taken from him. Big uh, Bigfoot and Indelicato, Doc and Shasta, Wolfman and his dream. His his once he discovers drugs and decides he's he's gonna renounce capitalism. uh, His hippie dream is taken from him by the FBI. Everyone in this film is in the thrall of some kind of loss, and I think. That is what, I do feel like that is what connects him. I think that is what, you know, not that we need to explain every fucking thing, which is funny because I'm hosting a show that is doing a scene by scene breakdown of this movie. Not that we have to explain every fucking thing in this movie, but I feel like that also is, does explain some of those weird beats like Doc sensing Bigfoot outside or just that, that mirroring back and forth in that second to last scene. But I also think that it is that recognition of similar sorrow and loss in Bigfoot that is what allows Doc to see him and recognize, oh, he fucking needs a keeper, man. I I know what he's feeling. I haven't gone as deep as he has. I haven't been as, because I think at this point, Bigfoot is kind of lost. Like, there's no coming back for Bigfoot. Uh, Are you thinking he's
3: a little lost when he shoves a handful of, (laughs) a
2: whole dime bag into his mouth and then- Well, see, I think that's that's pretty indicative of that in that I think that there is still hope. There is, go back to the idea of hope, there is still hope for Doc I think that doc is still capable of bravery and, and also empathy as we see bravery with uh, Adrian and puck, but also empathy in this moment, he's able to look at Bigfoot and go, fuck, he's hurting too. He's lost something too. And all of a sudden you see the tears roll down his face. And I don't think, I don't think it's just because his stash is being eaten. I think doc's a guy that always knows where he can get, where he can score. Uh, but I you think it's a board like, that'll tell him. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's going to take him right down the wheelchair. He knows exactly where to go. Um, it's that he's like oh my god he's he's lost he's lost his his one thing just like i have i think the difference is though i think that something is curdled deep within bigfoot because i think that bigfoot at at his base and it makes sense because he's a member of the lapd uh, bigfoot is a coward bigfoot has to outsource his vengeance to doc bigfoot's never going to be the hero and i think the difference between these two men doc doesn't want to be Bigfoot and he doesn't want Bigfoot to be Bigfoot he wants I think to help Bigfoot in this moment and make him better Bigfoot sees Doc and I think in this final scene Bigfoot wants to be Doc I think that's why he's eating all that pot I think I think he's he's behaving in what his mind tells him this is a Doc thing to do this will make me the hero of the story make me like the man who gets to be the hero because I think the, the the biggest tragedy I think to Bigfoot is he he knows he's not the good guy he's still with the LAPD he's still with the 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 very thing that killed his partner. He, he just had to kind of nudge like a player on a chessboard, nudge Doc around to take care of the wet work for him. Just like the LAPD nudged Adrian around to kill Indelicato, that Bigfoot actually doesn't get to be the good guy. And I think it kills him a little bit. And I think that that's what draws him to Doc. That's, that's my take. And now you can sit there and you can demolish it on my own show and break my heart.
3: You've, you've made
2: a pretty convincing case, actually. Why, thank you. Thank you. I try. I've thought about this movie once or twice. i i I, you know i i do think i know a thing or three about it I, i try i try but to 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 go down that road a little further about uh complicity with the lapd bigfoot's complicity with it that actually brings me back to something i was thinking of when you asked me you know when you compared this from the night moves or say like chinatown or the french connection these these very very bleak films noir that just there is just unremittingly dark with really no sunlight by the end of the, by the end of these films, no sunlight whatsoever. I think a huge anchor to this scene for me is that it does in its own way, in its own weird kind of procedural exposition drop way, really scrape the bottom of the ocean floor of this film in terms of its exploration of complicity with evil. Uh, that there is something so haunting that exists in this film that uh, the, the, how, it's, how insidiously the tendrils of the forces of that darkness or the forces of that goldness, if you want to get cute, reach into all things and how to even make a move against evil itself, this grand evil force that, that, that fucks everything up for the good guys, as Anderson says, Doc has to work with the arms of that evil force you know he's having to work with the department of justice here you know take this the 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 opening of this scene let's go back to the very beginning of the scene he walks into an office and richard Milhouse fucking nixon is literally looming over Uh his left shoulder in portrait form in the hallway looking and smiling uh penny works for the doj penny is part of the problem even if she leverages her position to help doc you know, she is also someone who also used it to move Doc closer to the FBI to get her own answers earlier in the film. Yeah, I mean, yeah like what happens
3: when the FBI shows up in the elevator lobby? Like, I gotta go to the bathroom.
2: Like <laughs> there is a there is a complicity, and 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 and, and Doc is, is is just as complicit because Doc is having to work with the DOJ. Everyone is using the other. Hell, uh, you you mentioned it earlier. Penny's corruption it even seems to shock Doc himself when she admits, "Oh, we look at people's jackets all the time." And it's just, and then just ended another bit of, of that mirroring that I'm going to keep defending. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that Jungian mirroring. Stick to your guns, man. Stick to your guns. Well, you know, I got, I got, to, I got to do what I got to do. Uh, in that Bigfoot is both interacting with the machine that broke him and killed his partner, the LAPD, and he is using his position within it to give Doc the intel to place him on the playing board where bigfoot wants him to be he he cannot bigfoot is not someone who could extricate himself from his own complicity he's he's he doesn't he doesn't quit the lapd he doesn't do a fucking charles bronson band you know uh, the, the shotgun belts crisscrossed over his chest gun in either hand on the mission of vengeance he just he stays a cop and he uses the the tools he has within the lapd to get what he wants and even doc himself uh everyone in the film is corrupted even doc You can't move against the fang without that corruption as a part of your life. You look at them as we, as we've learned earlier in the film, it comes in a jokey sequence. So it's easy to miss because we're looking at Martin Short run with his pants down, but uh, it's made clear that Doc's very first case was to get hired by Crocker Fenway, who is as close to an evil big bad as inherent vice gets at the end of the film. And that Crocker was Doc's first case and he bankrolled his entire career. Doc's career as that pretty able detective that you pointed out, it exists because Crocker Fenway paid him. The, 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 the thing that put him on the road to the man he is now was blood money or fang money. And I know it's easy to miss because we're, we're, we're trying to catch all the names that are flying out of uh, into, uh, Adrian Prush's jacket and trying to figure out what the hell uh, Penny is even talking about and what Doc is talking about. So much of this sequence, it's not just table setting for the final act. It is the final act. It is the big bang that propels it forward with this idea that no one is untouched, that no one is uncorrupted. And that takes me back to the the pitch black darkness of this film, the part that is dark, which is that all of these people are part of the mess that they might be trying to clean it up, but they're also a part of it. They're touched by it. They're stained by it. And that, that's pretty fucking harrowing to me.
3: Also, when you frame it that way, it suddenly doesn't feel like the Golden Fang is the enemy, or at least the Golden Fang is not the not what's trying directly to to either frame or kill Sportello. It's a it's a grieving man resorting to desperate means out of a, a, a petty sense of revenge or a not so petty sense of revenge, and, yeah, yeah, and suddenly, like that lifts the story up as opposed to like. Some sort of you know, Doctor Mabuse-like figure that's pulling (laughs) around, you know, nineteen seventies L.A. It it suddenly becomes like an angry cop doing everything he can, you know, within the powers of the institution that employs him, to get Mm -hmm. revenge on the same institution that killed. If if not his lover, then at least his very his closest friend. Yeah, uh, and and using some sort of like hippie patsy who he just you know believes is some doper, some dumbass doper, uh, to like get it done for him. Well That's it's exactly a human right. tragedy. It's not an institutional
2: tragedy at that point. It's a human mm-hmm. tragedy. That's you're and you are so right there because, I mean, the fang never takes notice of Doc. Like Doc yeah. is doing all these things that if the fang really cared about him or thought that he was truly effectual that they would have smacked. Like he walks into the Wolfman residence with a horrible disguise and easy to easy to spot fake questions. He, he, he goes to Chris itself. One of the beating, the many beating hearts, of of the thing with another shitty disguise and these weird these weird uh throwaway lines about planetary chakras that seem to be confusing to all the the, the people there and that clearly this guy is not on the up and up the weird way he focuses on puck's swastika and makes dr aubrey three please so nervous i'm really glad i said that name so well so quickly um yeah. But they never, ever once, not even when he's chasing after Shasta or when Shasta comes back and she's like, I'm afraid that, you know, he's like, is someone keeping a watchful eye? And he's like, yeah, you know, Uh, they don't care about him. Like he is so, he's a flea to keep, if we're going to keep our dog metaphor, he's a flea and he just buzzes around, but he doesn't fuck anything up. They only take notice of him twice. Once by happenstance, they have to crack, uh, Adrian has to crack him on the head just to knock him out. At the beginning at Channel View Estates, just yep. just to get him out of the way, because he's just he just ha- he's a he's not even a detective; he's a bystander, to them at that moment. And it's only when Bigfoot loads up his car with Golden Fang Smack that they ever once pay attention to him. It's almost like they don't even care that he killed Adrian and Puck. It's that he took the he took something of monetary value, of yes. capitalist and, value. And, and who and does
3: the, who does the Fang send after him? The fucking, <laughs> the
2: fucking PTA they send the fucking they send I don't a- mean Paul
3: Thomas Anderson I mean the parents <laughs> association and a, a blonde prepubescent
2: uh, young woman with braces Does yeah. she have
3: braces she has braces right am I right you
2: familiar? know I, I actually have to I remember watch. the
3: middle finger i just don't remember the braces
2: hard to see those braces because i it's a bit washed out because i am sure that is the sequence shot on that garage <laughs> test film so it's a little hazy but I'm, you know, maybe, but yeah, they, they, who do they send? They send a um, a lawyer from Orange County who, who looks like he's like cut from the mold of the savings and loan scandal that'll happen a couple of years later um, to just make a deal with them and get him out of the way. And even then he's more of an annoyance because they're like, are you sure you don't just want some money? Can we just give you some money and you can go away? Like they, he is what's, he is so, he is so minor key and small scale to the Fang that they don't even bother wanting to murder him. They're just, can we just give you some money? Yeah. And will you leave? And just give us the smack and leave. And yeah, I I think that that is the true, in a weird way, one of the true horrors of uh, the horror elements of this story is that, yeah, it's, it's not about one man. It's not about Doc's one man war against the Fang. It's about Bigfoots and that, Unbeknownst to Doc, this whole time he's been a pawn, a a pawn of complicity through all of these equally, if not deeper, complicit systems, being pushed and pushed over and over again by a far more complicit and conflicted man, Bigfoot, and it's God, it just the the level of cats cradling of plots there. Even my own my my mind is starting to blow over this.
3: Well, you know, I have to say I'm I'm uh, I'm partially relieved and, and uh, partially apologetic that we've we've cracked every single riddle in this film in this two hours <laughs> and that there's it's, really it's no done. point I'm in done. doing We're this done. podcast anymore. So thank God, because I'm thank tired. Thank uh, listeners for um, you know the last episode of uh, <laughs> income advice. I, I'm glad oh. I could. I, I'm glad I could be part of the finale.
2: Well, this was a nice milestone. We did it. We did it, man. We're done. We're good. We can go have a beer. We can relax. I can quit thinking about this movie for a while. <laughs> finally. Finally. As if. As if you could ever <laughs>
3: stop thinking about this movie.
2: Uh, uh, you know what? I'm actually curious what's going to happen when I actually stop talking about it for, for a couple hours every week. I'm, 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 I'm curious if I'll stop thinking about it. What's Maybe the, I'll finally... What's the next scene-by-scene movie? going to be Steel Magnolias? Oh, what are we God. For, no, uh, no, for a follow-up no. to this? No. I, I cried too hard. Blake, if you're I listening, t- I will take this answer off air. <laughs> i cry too hard at steel magnolias she dies she wants she just wanted to have the kid Now she's Fucking so oh well i mean jesus every come on all right tom Skerritt is great in it too i, I do love tom Skerritt. i'll talk about him boy we're going so far afield it's finally happened we're going it happens every episode where we just take a detour so far away from an air of ice and it's me talking about how i appreciate the performance of tom tom scarrett in uh, steel magnolias that all right all of that said all of that said, we, we have cracked a lot of mysteries today. We've solved a lot of problems. I think we've, we've come to learn a little bit more about ourselves, about our country, about our place in the world, and the very, very vice of time. Uh, yeah, I think we did pretty good today, don't you? I think, we're, I think we did good. I think it was a, a vice-filled six hours we've had. <laughs> it only felt like six. It was actually a very brisk <laughs> 12, and it felt, I felt like that. six because of how fast it, it went. It
3: did. It felt like half the time of the actual recording time of this podcast. Right. <laughs> I, oh. I, I got to tell you, man, this was so fun. Thank you so much for for letting me be a part of this.
2: Oh, get out of here. Listen to you. Thank you for being a part of this. I so I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming and talking about this amazing scene. So much going on in this scene. So much more than I think is given credit for. But then that's basically every scene in this damn film. I think it's, there's so much more happening, as we said at the top of this episode. These, these, these weed dad films of PTA, every scene, there are so many layers, so many rewarding <laughs> layers that come out of that pot fog and, and waft into your face that you didn't even know they were there. But before you go, do me a favor, do everyone a favor listening, tell them where they can find your work.
3: Oh, uh, if you go to, uh, I'll give you the official URL, www.rollingstone.com backslash movies. Uh, you will find a, a good deal of my uh, writings and blatherings and uh, hyphenated adjective-filled rants and um, appreciations, takedowns, indoctrinations, uh, testaments, testimonies, cinephilia, cynophobia,
2: and just general film nerd blatherings. I'll take it. Boy, that was good. Also, hey, hey, hey. You're doing a virtual seminar on There Will oh, Be Blood.
3: Yes, thank you for the shout-out for that. Um, I'm actually... Uh, th- this was actually very fortuitous because I'm in the middle of doing a bunch of Anderson rewatches and taking notes for um, for There Will Be Blood and, and doing all this stuff. And so this uh, this came along. I watched Inherent Vice a little a little sooner than I would have if I was just going film by film to kind of set everything up to look at the, um, the, the pre-blood and the post-blood stuff. But This uh, this actually reflects really nicely on uh, a bunch of stuff that I want to talk about for that thing. So yes, uh, please join me for that. It's BYOM. You had to bring your own milkshake, but uh, it should be a really lovely, funny
2: evening. I and I, I for one am very much, very much looking forward to it because I have not yet heard you speak about PTA enough. I'm I will be there. Thank you for that. I have some thoughts, sir. (laughs) You do? I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Well, I'm looking very much forward to that. Thank you again, David, for coming on today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And be sure to join me next time with a very special guest as we dive into the midnight pitch dark of the offices of one Adrian Prussia.
1: Well, it's become about as clear as the vodka you keep in your icebox. If ever there was someone to lead through the tangle of character and callbacks and plot and police files of this scene, it was David. But now what? It's one thing to figure out what it all means. But what do we do with that? Now that we know who's who, who's the bad guys, and who are the good guys, and who are the people cats cradled in between. Because it's one thing to know. It's a whole kind of other thing to then do something. Because now it's time to dive deep into the heart of darkness. Or maybe it's a mouth with golden fangs. I guess we'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.